God bless guys and welcome once again to Research Podcast and on today's episode we continue our look at the doctrine of justification and in last week's episode we began by considering what justification is or what it means and and that is simply put a declaration from God over the believer that we are now made right before his sight. The issue that has constantly been brought up is how can this be? How can how can we be declared to be right when we still struggle with sin? How can God say of someone that they are right when they clearly do no right? How can God be just and at the same time justify someone who's a sinner? It doesn't make sense. For how, how is God going to be seen as fair if he only turns a blind eye to the clear sins of man? Wouldn't it make more sense if we stop being sinners, then God can declare us to be righteous or hold a position of justification? Doesn't that make more sense? Doesn't it make more sense to be referred to as, as being good only when we are doing good things? This is the view of not only the, you know, of the Roman Catholics, but of any religion out there, really, that the way to heaven is through our good works. But there is a problem here with that view, and that is that no one is capable of being saved by works. There is no one who is able to be consistently good and without fault. If that were the case, then there would be no requirement of Jesus coming down. If man could, in his own strength, of his own self, reach that state of perfection in this life, then Jesus died in vain because it was something that we could have achieved in our own strength. But that is not the case, and that is not what Scripture tells us. We could not and would not have ever reached that state of goodness that might resemble even the slightest of what a perfect man, uh, according to the scripture or the standard of scripture, is worthy of salvation, in other words. Even if we lived to be a thousand years, we would never reach that, that state or that, that moment where we finally have reached perfection. You know, in our society, we have this very optimistic view that with time, we will become better. I mean, we've been doing this for, since Jesus' death, right? It's been 2,000 years and man has not gotten better. If anything, it's progressively gotten worse. So there's just no chance. So then on what basis does God justify a man if not on his works or deeds? How does God accredit man with righteousness and thus justifies them if they in, in and of themselves hold no righteousness that might lead them to a state of justification? Well, that is what we considered in our last episode. And we briefly looked at the doctrine of penal substitution as, as we considered portions from the Old Testament that predicted the work of Christ at the cross. And penal substitution is the teaching of Scripture that informs us of how God can justify. How God justifies the unjust and not compromise Himself in any of His holy attributes. In fact, quite the opposite. It upholds in equal balance 
all his godly attributes such as his wrath, his justice, his love, his mercy, and his grace. It is laid out completely in that perfect work of Christ. For it was at the cross where God placed the iniquities of man upon his perfect son. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 clearly states, For our sake God made him, speaking of his son Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Jesus, and that speaks of our unity with him, by the way, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is perfectly consistent with what we saw last week in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant of the Lord. That for, our, for all of our iniquities was placed upon Jesus, upon the suffering servant, and he was crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah 53, 5 tells us. And we reflected upon the substitutionary work of Christ being foreshadowed on the Yom Kippur, that is the Day of Atonement, where the animal that was sacrificed was a picture of the work of Christ at the cross. When the people would lay their hands upon the goat as a symbol of their sin being transferred onto the animal before it was slain. And in the picture of the scapegoat, we have a different a different image given to us or portrayed to us where our guilt is laid upon the animal before it being released into the wilderness as a picture of man's guilt leaving them never to return again. But as we mentioned last time, it only served really as a visual aid, not as an actual effectual work. For the simple fact that they had to do it year after year. It was a, a repetitive uh, ritual. Its repetitive nature really served as an indicator of its insufficiency. And a hope really to look forward to that one day God would bring to effect what was being promised in the symbol. But that was last week's podcast. And as I mentioned to you last week, what I wanted to focus on this week was on the result that comes from being justified. We have noted that justification teaches um, us that we have a right standing before God. But what does that look like in a practical sense? How does that knowledge of knowing what God had done for us or knowing how God has made us right before His sight in Jesus at the cross... How does that affect our day-to-day -day life? What does that bring for us? I mean, other than it ushers us into, into the presence of God, but uh, how does that affect us in the day-to-day, in, the -day, in, in our very moments right now, in the present state? Something that, that is connected with justification in, in these two verses that, that we've considered in, in last week's podcast in both Romans and in Isaiah, is the idea of peace. Look with me once again to these two texts that we saw last week. We'll reread them just to get a, a reminder of what it says. In, in Romans 5 verse 1, the Word of God says this, which is the, the opening text that we, we started off with last week. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 53.5, we are told this. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I read it again. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace is the fruit that comes from being justified by the Lord. Now, if we were to put this in a negative way, one way in which we may assess if we are truly justified, that we are truly convinced that we have received this work of regeneration um, that comes from the Lord in our lives, is if we can claim that we walk in this peace that comes only through Christ. It is a peace easily distinguishable from what the world's perspective of what peace looks like, but it is one that we can define. We can we can identify easily what this peace is. And if we, we have this, if we have been justified by God, then we live in such a peace. At my local church, my, my beloved brother uh, was given the opportunity to share the Word of God at our, at our Sunday service in the evening. And, and he shared a few thoughts on peace. In particularly, the peace that is offered by this world down through the histories um, that we, you know, you could just see in, 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 in the pages of history. And he explained how the Roman Empire exercised such a dominating reign. And it was from this offer from Rome, this, this specific Roman peace, that the way they would bring peace to a land was firstly offering a treaty with them with that land, with that people. And if that failed, then they would take it by force and use religion to govern the people. And this was the peace that they would bring to the nations. In a similar fashion, we see a modern day take of this, uh, this the Roman Empire's model of bringing peace to nations in, in the United States of America in which the first attempt is always a, a diplomatic attempt, right? Where they, they present a treaty or an agreement in hopes that the, that the nations would accept and it would be well received. But in the case when that is denied, when that is rejected, they then conceive a threat within that nation and send in troops to so-called protect and liberate the people by bringing them this so-called peace. Uh, we've seen that with, with uh, unfortunate with, with um, places like Iraq and and what have you. Um, and but the point is, in both cases, peace is brought through a non-peaceful way. But is this the peace that Christ comes to establish? Is this the peace that Christ offers us that we have in Jesus? Of course not. The word peace in Hebrew, as many may have come to know by now, is shalom. And the idea of this word peace will never resemble that of what the world passes as their version of peace. As we speak, 
right now, Israel is in a place of independence and no longer in captivity. But they would never consider themselves at peace or living in peace. For as long as there are tanks roaming around their country, for as long as the nation feels the need to carry arms to protect themselves from any potential danger, they would never consider themselves to be at, at true peace. This shalom, this peaceful state, they would never consider themselves to be in this peaceful state uh, until they remove or feel it unnecessary for them to no longer carry arms, no longer hold or have an army to protect themselves from any invasion or any form of danger. Much like we may live in Australia and have a sense of peace, a limited sense of peace, where we feel okay to walk in our streets and, and not have the, the necessary inclination to carry weapons with us or, or anything like that. But do we still need to lock our homes? Do we still need to make sure that everything is secure and protected just in case uh, a thief breaks in or anything like that? We still do. There is not that real sense of peace. It is peaceful as far as we can, we can stretch that word to be here in this world. But we are not living in that peace, that shalom that really uh, is expressed in that word. And we don't need to go to the world for what peace may look like, however. We, we don't need to try and see if the world can describe for us what peace is or to look like, because we're not going to find it there. We're not going to find it in our society. We're not going to find it in, in the most peacefulest of countries out there. You're not going to find uh, the purest understanding of what peace truly is. You'll never find it there. To get a better understanding of what real peace ought to feel like, or to look like, or to be experienced by humanity, we've got to go to the Word of God where we see the biblical understanding of what I would say an, an unimaginable peace, what that looks like. All we have to do is just turn to Scripture to find the proper definition of what peace really ought to feel like or to look like. And again, this might be somewhat difficult for us to conceive, being that it is something so foreign to us, yet it is what Scripture tells us what true peace is. And to that, we're going to go back to Isaiah one more time. And this time we're going to go to chapter 11. And we'll read from verse 6 onwards. And in here we are given uh, a snapshot or, or a sense of what peace is according to Scripture. And it may be hard for us to even begin to imagine this re as, a, as being a reality, but it is what peace really should look like. So verse 6 of chapter 11 of, uh, of the book of Isaiah says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and weaned child shall be shall put his hand in the udder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow. Can we even begin to imagine such a world in which the ferocious lion just hangs out with the fattened calf and not devour it? Like, how could this be that the lion could just ignore his natural instinct to feed on what is right next to him? Like literally right there beside him. How could he withhold himself from not just jumping on him and devouring and sinking his sharp teeth onto his, his lunch and bringing an end to, to that much needed desire to, to quench that rumbling tummy of his? How, how can he do that? How can you not feed? How, how can the wolf just sit there idly by next to the lamb that for, for forever it's been accustomed that, you know, the, the wolf takes great measures to dress even like one of them just to get close enough to these sheep before attacking as many as he can. Um, but he, we're presented with, with a, a wolf just... Hanging out with the lamb. And the lamb is there with the wolf. And he's perfectly safe in the midst of what was once his greatest threat. Like he's hanging out with the wolf. He's just chilling. Alright. And there's nothing going on. There's no sense or desire of, of violence being stored up within the predator over the prey. Is this not peace unimaginable? And yet, it is a promise that is to come. But more so than a promise yet to come, it also serves as another visual aid of even a greater peace that we have. A peace that surpasses our understanding. In ways in which I can't even begin to sufficiently describe to you. For in our world, the wolves may roam in the midst of the lambs in an attempt to feed. But some still escape their destruction. But what of that of the wrath of God? You know, in our world, the lions may, may be stealth in their approach on on you know jumping on their prey whatever prey that may be and and some escape but what about those of the wrath of God the punishment of God it is not so those who who's who's lined up against the wrath of God against the punishment of God they will not escape what about the punishment of that all-consuming fire of the Lord's holy wrath towards the sinner? The calf may escape the lion, but the sinner can never escape the holy wrath of God. They will never escape that. 
There is no running away from it. There's no way we can hide from the presence of God, the holy wrath of God. It is only through the justification that has come forth from the perfect work of Christ that we may no longer walk in the danger of ever facing the wrath of the true living God. Much like the wolf and the lamb or the lion and the calf. We may now, as the author of Hebrew tells us in 4.16, we may now come boldly to the throne of grace. And this is the peace that has been brought to us through our justification. We may now come to his throne because this throne, his throne is no longer a throne of judgment, but a welcoming throne of grace. Our boldness stems not from anything that we may have achieved, but solely by what Christ has done for us at the cross, achieving this justification for us. For we must come before the Father clothed in our brother's clothing, just like Jacob came before Isaac, looking like Esau. We must come before the Father in Christ. We can only come boldly clothed in the likeness of His Son, in the newness of life that is His Son, that Christ has purchased for us. For without which, without this justification, without being changed, without being made right with God, the lion will still devour the calf. The wolf will eat the lamb. But those who are in the Lord are now in peace with God. And it is with this in mind that we turn to our first New Testament verse that really highlights this result in Christ that we have. This right standing before God. And that is in that ever famous verse in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, let's think upon that word condemnation. What does this mean? Well, this word here is a judicial term as well as just as justification is. Justification is a, is a term used, it's a legal term um, that is used in the, in the New Testament in the same way uh, we have condemnation being a, a legal term. Condemnation is the just verdict of being sentenced to punishment, of which scripture describes it as this eternal, never-ending punishment, a just punishment against those who have disregarded God's holiness. The standard of His holiness determines the standard of its punishment, and that is that it is an eternal punishment. And that is why it is required of all who have rejected God for their own selfish gains in life. That is what is required. That is what will be dished out to them. They abandon or exchange the truth of God for a lie, as Roman tells us. And the result being 
is that they worship and serve the created things of this world instead of the creator who is worthy of eternal praise. That's what Paul tells us. And so the result is that they will face this punishment, but not those who are in Christ. For the punishment that was due to them has been laid upon the Son as He was crushed for our transgressions, causing us to be justified. The debt that we owed has been paid. Our freedom has been purchased. The wrath of God has been quenched. It has been satisfied. And His holiness uh, has been eternally been glorified by the perfect work of His Son. What can we boast in? What can we boast in? For it is all of God. And this is justification. That once we know and believe that we serve a God who always keeps His promise. He has promised to lay up our sins upon the cross of Christ for our sake. And when we believe that, our punishment will never be doubled up. Once the punishment of death has been paid or laid upon His Son, He will never call you back up to pay what was already been paid for through Jesus. He's, he's not an unjust God that will punish Jesus for your sin and then when you commit sin again, He's going to call you up on that. That's not how God works. Thus, we live in this peace with God where we never have to feel the need to look over our shoulders. We will never have to feel the need to walk around with tanks in case of an attack from a possible threat. Where the lamb can sit with the wolf, the prey with the predator and be at peace. What joy and peace we have because of Jesus but to finish, up, to finish up this wonderful doctrine, let's wrap it up with what, as we always do, what does Jesus say? What does Christ teach about this? Is this something that Christ holds up? Does He teach this doctrine of justification? And to do that, let's turn to, let's turn to Luke chapter 18 verse 9 to, to 14. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And see what Jesus says about justification here. And the Word of God says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and He treated others with content. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing off, will not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What is justification? We have defined it as the right standing before God. A declaration from God over man as being justified, as being right. But if we can reduce it even further to more simpler terms, not in such technical terms, but in relational or applicable terms, it is the ability to come before God and being accepted of Him. That is what justification is. Being able to, be, to come before God and be welcomed or embraced or accepted by God. That is what it is. This, the issue is, is this then, in, in much more simpler terms, how can we then approach a holy God whom we have greatly offended? How do we do that? That's the, the main issue. That's the issue of all religions. That's the, the issue that we all have here in humanity. Globally, this is the problem. How can we approach a holy God who has promised to, to punish eternally? He has a wrath boiling up against humanity because we have offended Him greatly. How can we approach Him? How can we come up to Him? How? We are given only two ways that man approaches God. There's only two ways. One is the right way and one is the wrong way. And in this parable, we have the example of the Pharisee who exemplifies for us the man who relies upon his own means of entry into the holy presence of God through his prayer in which we see he does what all men do when it comes to justifying themselves. They compare themselves with other people. That's, that's the standard. That's the, the way we always do it. We always compare ourselves with other people. We compare ourselves with the very low standard set by other corrupt men, in which we always will give this false notion that we are better than what we really are. So if we ever compare ourselves to other people, other fallen people, we'll always look good. And so it creates this false idea in our minds that we are actually good people. When the reality is that scripture tells us that we're not. And so he begins to list before God's ease, this Pharisee, all that he thinks makes him good enough or a good enough person for, for his justification or his, his right standing with God. He gives his tithes of all that he earns. He even fasts more than what is required of him. He doesn't commit you know, all these external acts of, of adultery and extortion and so on and so forth. And so from his own distorted self-perspective, he is a decent guy. He's a good guy. He's cool. He should be accepted and welcomed by God. He can approach the throne of God and say, God, look at me. I'm cool. Let's, let's be friends. But notice with me that he gives thanks to God because of it. He says, I'm not like the other guys. I don't do all these evil things. I, I, I don't hurt you know, other people. I don't go out of my way I, I, I'm, uh, to you know, purposely... Upset someone. I'm nice. I'm good. I, I do good things. I help, you know, old ladies cross the road. I give to the poor, whatever it is. 
And notice though, what I want to draw your attention to is that he acknowledges God in all of this goodness that he has listed. He says, God, but you know, I thank you, God. I thank you. This is you. So he's not, not boasting because he gives credit to God for it, right? I mean, that's, that's his logic here. He, he's not boasting, at least from his perspective, because he's giving credit to God for that's what's right. And isn't this the position of all who reject the sovereignty of God in election? All those who despise the doctrine of predestination? All those who say they don't boast but give God thanks because they did this or they did that. But, but you know, I'm not boasting because I'm saying it's because of God. Hey, we don't boast in ourselves, they claim. We give glory to God for it. But what is the point of this parable? To reveal to you those who trust in themselves for the righteousness. This is why we say that it is all of God, not 99.9% and you know 0.01% is us. No, a hundred percent is of God. His work in us, the work that He started, He will complete it. It is not of us. There is nothing that we do. It is not, I had believed. No, it's like you have believed because God has allowed you to believe. God has revealed himself to you. You know, when, when Peter says, you know, uh, he declares that you are the son of God, you are this, you, he, he, he speaks the truth about Christ. He says, this hasn't been revealed to you by man. This hasn't come from you. This isn't, hasn't come from humanity. This is, hasn't come from the nature of man. This has being revealed to you by God the Father. It is not something that we muster up. It is not something that we in our intelligence or in our wisdom or, or someone else's persuasive words that has kind of illuminated us to the reality that Jesus is the Savior and that we must place our faith in Him. No, it is purely the gift of God. It is all of God. I can't sit here and say, oh, Lord, I believe in Jesus, but I thank you because I was the one that accepted you into my heart. I thank you, Lord God, because I embraced you, because I have decided. No, no. It is all of God. And that is truly what we see in, in today, don't we? That that Pharisee-ish lifestyle, that mentality where we give God the glory so-called, but really we're boasting in the things that we've done. But by contrast, Jesus gives us the example of the tax collector, a man despised by his contemporaries as a evil, corrupt man. For he takes from his own people and he aligns himself with the enemy of Israel. But there is there's a change that occurs in him. An experience left absent from his story, but an obvious one, an obvious change nonetheless. Something that has caused him to acknowledge the reality um, that lives in him, and that is the only reality that is of most important to acknowledge for anyone and everyone, and that is that he is a sinner, or that he was a sinner. That is the fundamental issue that we must come to realize in our lives, that we are fundamentally evil. Thus, 
we are sinners. Has there ever been a message more clear than that of Scripture? That we are sinners, desperate sinners, who are on our way to eternal punishment. The message has always been the same from the beginning. Repent, repent, repent. What is the, what is the significance of repentance? Isn't it just the acknowledgement that we are sinners? That's what is meant by repentance. It is acknowledge your state. It is that you are a sinner. And this tax collector felt the weight of his own sin. That he could not even look up in shame and guilt. He couldn't look up. And he caused him such a pain that he felt the need to peed on his own chest. And there... He, he, he could only really just express two things about himself. Two things, he says. The first thing is, he is a sinner. And the second is, God, have mercy on me. So that's the only two things. That's the only two things that is required. That's it. Is this not what Paul says in, in Titus 3, 4 to 5? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Isn't this what Jesus says of the tax collector? That of the two, the tax collector went home justified? There is a peace that comes from this, this justification, a peace that surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. Because we stand in awe and in wonder of how great is God's love for us, how great is His mercy that the war that was with us, between us, man and God is now over and we may approach God without fear, just like the lamb before the wolf and know that he will not devour us. This is the peace that comes from being justified, not by our righteous deeds or works of which we have none, but purely depending upon the grace of God and the work, the perfect work of Jesus Christ at the cross. It is the coming before God with an empty hand and saying, God, have, have mercy upon me. Because if you don't have mercy upon me, I have no hope. The lion will devour that calf. The wolf will eat that lamb. And that is why Jesus can say to his, to his disciples in John, that the peace that Jesus experiences with, with the Father, that, that, that peace that He has, that relationship that He has with the Father from all eternity, that peace, that peace, He leaves behind for us. As He promised in John 14, 27, that is the real peace, a peace not only to be enjoyed in the world to come, 
but a peace to be enjoyed in the here and now. That is what is, is presented to us in that verse in John 14, 27. That we get to experience that peace now. That is, that is why he says, I leave you with my peace. His peace he gives to us. That peaceful and loving relationship he enjoys with the Father becomes our peace too. That is why we can come to him in prayer and say, Heavenly Father, dear God, dear Father, beloved Father, Abba Father, we cry out. Through the Spirit, we can, we can express ourselves in such a way because we enter in this new relationship that has been established by the perfect work of Jesus. We have this in Jesus through His perfect work. He justifies us. He imputes on us or upon us His righteousness. Not only does He take our sin, not only does God transfer our sin over to Jesus at the cross and crushes him for it, but he also imputes over to us Jesus' perfect righteousness, thus making us right, justifying us. We started off by saying, how can God justify the unjust? It is because he does this work of imputation, double imputation. Not only does He transfer our sin over to Jesus, but He transfers Christ's righteousness over to us. We don't need to add anything. We don't need to do anything to, 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 um, to win over God. No, we do those righteous works, those good deeds, those, those good works, not because we want to inherit salvation, but because we have already inherited it, because there has been a fundamental change in us. And that is what regeneration teaches us, that we express ourselves in these things because we can't help ourselves anymore, because we just love God. It is a work of God from beginning to end. And if you don't have this peace, if you haven't experienced this peace, you too can have this peace. If you, are, if you don't have it, if you don't know it, you too can experience it. Know that He is faithful to give it to you. But we must come as that terrible sinner who holds out nothing in his hand and claims nothing for himself other than the sin that he has, just like the tax collector. We too can go home justified and receive that peace with God through Jesus Christ. We too can experience and live out Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, are you in Christ Jesus? If not, please reach out to us through our podcast, through Anchor, through our, our social media. We want to talk to you. We want to pray over you. We want to share the word with you. You can be justified. You can come into the presence of God and cry out to Him and He will hear you. 
You can be reestablished. That relationship that was broken through sin at the fall. That can be restored through Jesus. You can have that peace. And with this, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there until next time. But know, for those who haven't received this peace, know that it is not too late. Again, I want to encourage you to reach out to us. We would love to pray for you. But until next time, as I said on last week's episode, we are taking a break from this series. And what a wonderful way to end on the, on the doctrine of justification. But we will start and commence our, our, um, our new series on First John. How do we know that we're saved essentially is what we're going to be looking at. Um, until next time, we pray that you have been blessed and that God has been glorified. Thank you for listening.